we look at the scriptures today, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, continuing our prioritized series. The beginning of the year, we launched this series looking at our core values, revisiting those, reminding ourselves of why we exist in this community. And this, this, this week and next week, we'll conclude that series. We'll jump back into the Gospel of Mark and continue to work our way through it together uh, starting two weeks from now. But this morning, we find ourselves looking at, us, at the, the need that we have or the core value that we have of missional community. We want to prioritize that as a part of the life of this church body. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 5, if not, you can follow on the screen behind me as we read it together. We'll read verses 13 to 16 together. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is casting vision for what, his, what he uh, envisions life looking like under his good and gracious rule. In fact, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is all about the kingdom of God and the King Jesus himself. What does the kingdom look like as it breaks into human history? And in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting a, an ethic for his citizens that is essentially upside down and inside out. We've, we, we saw that when we went through the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago. But I want to revisit this text this morning and us to consider its implications for us as a community together that God is bound together, that is sent on mission to accomplish his purposes and agenda. I love the way Steve prayed this morning of us being sensitive to what God is doing around us and then joining him in that as we see what God is doing as he prompts, leads, and convicts us. But we do it together. Listen, community is something that is talked about a lot in churches in our particular generation. Um, you, you've probably heard sermons on community, done studies on community, lessons on community, had conversations about community. Everybody talks about community, but what is community? Okay, here's what community is, the way I would define community. Community is the fabric that is created whenever lives, the individual threads or strands of one life is woven together with the thread or strand of another life and another life and another life. So they create a fabric and a fabric is stronger. It is more resilient and oftentimes more beautiful than any one individual strand can be isolated and alone. And what tends to create community for us, particularly in our day and time, in our era, is shared interests. Okay? Case in point, go to Facebook and just search for groups. Okay? There are a whole, a, a, maybe unlimited, I don't even know how many groups are out there nowadays, but unlimited amounts of groups based on every common interest that you might have, okay? So you got running groups, you got fishing groups, you got CrossFit groups, you got paleo groups, you got keto groups, right? You got Atkins groups, you got all these different kinds of groups for hobbies and interests, activities, things that spark a fire within you that you enjoy doing, but listen, the church was never designed to be a community that's formed around shared interests. The church was always intended to be a community that's formed around a shared identity. Not what we enjoy doing, but who we are at our core. That's the vision that Jesus has for the church, I believe, here and elsewhere throughout the New Testament. Communities are always created by things that they share in common. But listen, what if, what if there was a, a community created by something bigger and more than just our shared interests, by generational concerns, okay, or by partisan politics, or by what we enjoy doing on Saturday afternoons? What if there was a community that was created by something bigger than our hobbies and interests, bigger than the way that the, than the teams that we cheer for, the places that we vacation, or perhaps... Or perhaps the way my kids are educated. What if there was a community that was created by something larger and more pervasive than the color of our skin? The tax bracket that we're all going to file in? Or 
the amounts of disposable income that we have? What if there's a community that transcended all of those things? And the way that the New Testament authors speak of the church, that's the kind of community they speak of. It's a community that's bound together, not by these interests, but by our identity. That's the community of the church that Jesus calls on mission here in this particular text. Now listen, maybe you've heard, before we get to the text, I want, I want to share, say a few more things. Maybe you've heard these kinds of thoughts circulating. Maybe you've thought them yourself or articulated them yourself. Maybe you've heard people say things like this, right? What has the church really done? This community that's bound together by a common identity, what have they really done, right? Other than take up space in a particular city on land for which they pay no property taxes, right? They get kind of scot-free, free and clear, right, in a building that's generating no sales tax, okay? So they don't pay any property tax. They don't generate any sales tax. What are they adding and investing into the community? Isn't the church just a group of people who are all basically believe the same thing and huddle together to protect themselves from people who think differently than they do? Maybe you've heard people say that before. Maybe you've thought that before in your own history. And listen, this morning... If you've said this before, or you've thought this before, I hope this message will challenge you to reconsider the way you view the community called the church. See, if you've heard them say this before, I hope it equips you in some way to thoughtfully engage them or interact with them or respond to that particular line of thinking. If you're a member of this church, I hope it will encourage you, listen, to begin to think about God's glory in this community through our activity, listen, that is rooted in our identity. God's glory in this community through our activity that's rooted in our identity, who we are. Now that brings us to our text this morning. See, as a church... We've said our mission statement is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe. And listen, when we talk about shaping disciples, we want to shape holistic disciples. Not just people whose heads are filled with knowledge, but whose hearts are inflamed for the glory of God and whose hands are engaged in ministries of mercy. And I believe that's what this text helps us understand this morning. And in this text, if we're going to be a true missional community and prioritize that, Jesus says there's two things you've got to know. One thing you've got to do, and then there's the motivation, the drive to do it. So what do you have to know? First of all, Jesus says you have to know what you are. You have to know what you are. Listen, as Christians, Jesus says we have a unique identity as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now listen, the Greek pronoun in this text, when he says you, okay? Some of you who've been with us a while, you know I like to break things down every once in a while. But listen, that, that, that pronoun you is an emphatic pronoun. It means it's emphasizing something. In other words, what Jesus is saying, what Matthew is writing is this, is that Christians, you and only you are the salt and light. You and only you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You and you alone and no one else is the salt of the earth. You and you alone and no one else is the light of the world. And that's important for you and I to understand, particularly living within 21st century America. Because at the inauguration of our current president... There was a pastor who stood and read from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, whenever he got to this particular portion of Scripture. In verses 13 through 16, the inflection of his voice changed slightly to highlight these verses. As if America somehow were the salt of the earth. As if America somehow were the light of the world. Listen, no nation, no kingdom, no country is the salt of the earth or the light of the world. There is a kingdom and its citizens are the salt of the earth and the light of the world as they're scattered abroad amongst all kingdoms. But it is the church, it is Christians as us, you and you alone. Not a nation, not a government, not a country. And unfortunately, the mixture of American civil religion with, Christ, with, with Christianity has persuaded that many that this text is about our nation rather than about the citizens of God's kingdom among every nation. 
You've got to know who you are, church. That's your identity. Jesus doesn't say, right? He doesn't say, aspire to be this. He says, you are this. You are this. You're salt and you are light. And so a salt and light, that's our identity. And out of that flows activity. Let's talk very generally for a moment about what that activity is. And the first thing is this, is that as salt, we deter decay. As salt, we deter decay. When Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, listen, church, he's saying that the presence of true Christians in any culture, it has a preserving effect. So the church, as it's manifest in any particular culture, in any particular generation, ought to have this effect of preservation. See, in the ancient world, before salt was ever used for seasoning, okay, now listen, whenever I throw something on the pit for a long time, I like to soak it in sea salt over the course of of several days sometimes. It's called brining, right? It makes that meat moist and tender, right? Because it's a seasoning. Or maybe you pull out the Lowry season salt, right? And you just, or Tony Sachery's. Some of y'all don't know about Tony Sachery's, but that's where I was raised, okay? So you sprinkle that stuff on there to add a little bit of flavor or seasoning. But in the ancient world, before they ever used salt for seasoning, it was used for a preservative. Before the days of refrigeration, they would salt the meat to extend its lifespan, its usable lifespan, because it preserved the meat and it kept it from decay. And so Jesus uses this. Listen, Jesus is not a sloppy teacher. Okay, he's not like me. Okay, he's very precise in the way that he uses his images. And so Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. So the church in every community, in every culture that it finds itself, this community of people who are bound together by a common identity ought to have an effect of preservation on that city, on that area, on that region, on the people with whom it has influence. Because human society, church, from the very beginning of time, from the fall forward, has had a natural pattern of decay ever since sin was introduced into the world. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. He says this in verses 28 and following. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they did not know God's righteous decree, or though they, so, sorry, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that's not evidence of the decay of human society from the wake of the fall, the ripple effect, the tidal wave, the tsunami that has engulfed every civilization and every culture, so that its natural tendency is towards decay, And in that, Jesus says, you are salt to preserve, to deter that decay, to have an impact on those who are around you. And listen, church, the degree to which we will deter decay as a community of people who are bound together by a common identity in Christ is the degree to which we are different than the world, distinct from the world. See, the way the church influences the world is not by being like the world, but by being distinct from the world. Okay? See, see and, and, and if we teased it out and had time to tease it out this morning, I would show you that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to turn things upside down in His ethic for how His citizens ought to live. For instance, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the Beatitudes They are those who help deter decay. Those who are peacemakers and bring about reconciliation in relationships where they've been fractured and divided are those who bring about the deterrence of decay. Those who are merciful, they deter decay. See, the degree to which the church, this community of people bound together by a common identity, shared identity, not just shared interest, but shared identity, the way that they 
deter decay is through their distinctness from the world. In fact, Jesus says it this way, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If the church is going to be salt, then we cannot spend our time trying to attract the world by trying to be like it. But to offer it a different narrative, a different story, a different way of being human in response to who Jesus is and what he's done. So assault Jesus as you deter decay, but as light, listen, Jesus says, because this is who you are, this is your identity, your activity flows from that, then you deter decay and you diffuse light. See, when Jesus calls Christians the light of the world, what he's not saying is that you are the source of the light. Not what he's saying. Okay? But rather he's saying you are a diffuser of the light. I can remember growing up in my small um, home in South Louisiana as a child. And in our living room was an addition that my parents had added on to the home. And in that, in that addition, they installed a light fixture there in the center of the house. And that light fixture was a fluorescent light fixture. Great light, right? The fluorescent light fixture there in the living room, and they had a little wood trim border around that box, and inside there was a fixture with two fluorescent bulbs, and they had a diffuser panel that sat inside that wooden trim. And it had all these little triangles. You guys know what I'm talking about? All the little triangles that come off of those diffuser panels. So as the light, the source of the light, hit that panel, it scattered the light throughout the rest of the room. And when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, he's not saying you are the bulb. He's saying you are the panel which is being diffused through because there is the source of the light and his name is not Shannon. Okay, his name is not fill in the blank with your name, but the source of the light is Jesus himself. He is the light, the source of it. He is the bulb. We are merely diffusing the light as it's shown through us to the world. See, already in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus in Matthew 4.16 quotes the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 9. And he says this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And who is that? Jesus Christ being born into the world. In John 8.12, Jesus says it this way. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, church, you were created by God and then redeemed by Him in order to be a diffuser of the light from which He is the source. So you diffuse light You diffuse light into the world. And he gives us two analogies here. One, again, he's not sloppy, okay? He's precise. He says a lamp that you light. Now, in those days, it didn't have a bulb and a switch, right? It was a wick and a flame that was lit and placed upon a table, not under a basket. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But it was placed upon a table, okay? And it was a wick that shone throughout the house, so it's a very individual idea, right? That there's an individual who is lit in order to diffuse light. But then he gives another very precise image. And he says, not only is it like a lamp on a stand, but it's also like a city on a hill. Now, a city on a hill, even in the ancient days, a lamp would have been individual. A city would have been communal. Because even in the ancient world, Cities were places of diversity and proximity and density. So you get all kinds of people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds who were brought together into the cultural hubs of their day. So there was diversity in the city. There was density in the city as people lived on top of each other. Okay, In the same way that it is in Dallas versus poetry. Okay? I'm not saying one is better than the other, although some of you believe it is, okay? But there is density in large urban cores, right? Whereas outside of that, people are more spread out. And because of that density, there was proximity. You knew the people who you were in relationship to, that lived, you lived among, right? And that's what Jesus he uses that image, I think, very specifically to say a city. That's you, church. 
made up of individuals, but who are communally shining forth the light that's fusing this light of Jesus into the world, into a dark world, into a lost world. And so Jesus says you deter decay and you diffuse light because you're salt and you're light. Those are the two activities Jesus says that we are involved in that are rooted in this identity. Now, what is the second thing you got to know? First thing was you got to know who you are. Second thing, or what you are. Second thing is you got to know where you belong. Know where you belong. Look in verses 14 and 15 again. Jesus says that we're to be a city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. See, when Jesus uses those images, he doesn't say you're to be a city in a valley. You're to be a city in an enclave. You're going to be a city buried away deep under the recesses of the ocean like Atlantis. Right? No, he doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say you're hidden in a cave or a valley or under the ocean, right, on the ocean floor. He says you're a city on a hill. In other words, a place where it can be seen. A place where the light that you're diffusing can give light to the world. That's what Jesus said. You've got to know where you belong. He doesn't say you're to... You're to withdraw from culture, but you're to engage culture in meaningful ways. Right? Lamps are placed on a stand where they have the greatest opportunity to spell the darkness by shining brightly. They don't go under tables or under bowls or in a sock drawer somewhere or behind a shower curtain. It's not where you put a candle. You put it on a stand to give light to the house. In a city on a hill that can, is lit up by all these individual candles in the windows can be seen from miles away in the ancient world. That's what Jesus says. You belong with, in, essentially immersed in or integrated in, not isolated from culture. Okay? That you're in, there's an insulation that you need, but that insulation should not lead to isolation. From the people who are around you who are living in darkness who need, who need what only the church is able to be. Because you and you alone, church, are the light of the world. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. So we don't withdraw as a missional community, we don't withdraw into kind of a Christian ghetto or into our Christian projects. Okay? That's not how we're intended to live. But rather we're in to engage culture. We're to engage those who are in the darkness, in the public spheres of our life. See, Christianity needs to move out of the private corners and closets into the public arenas of your life. Your faith in Christ. So know where you belong. Know what you are. Know where you belong. And then here's the one thing Jesus says we must do if we're going to deter decay and we're going to diffuse light. And it's, it's, it's so simple, yet so profound. And it's right here in the text. In verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others. Why? For the expressed purpose that they may see your good works. See, the way you deter decay and the way you diffuse light, Jesus says, is by doing good works. Now, let me be real clear with you this morning, right? We spent time talking about this this morning in Galatians, and I'm sure we will as we continue to move through it. There is not a single person on the face of the earth who was ever made right with God on account of their merit, on account of their good works, on account of their activity. There was no one who had a resume that they filled out and handed to God, and God looked at that resume and said, that's impressive, I'm going to let you in. Not a single person. In fact, every resume that has been submitted to God has had a big red stamp saying rejected because none of us are received by God on account of our merits, the good things that we do. But the only standing that we can have with God is not on account of our merits, but on account of His mercy, church. He's been merciful to us. He's been kind to us and gracious to us in the sending of His Son 
in the place of sinners to live for us and obey the law perfectly, to die in our place and receive our just punishment and rise from the grave and to send the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who would seal the relationship that we have with God by causing us to be born again and He would come to dwell within us. That's the only way you have a relationship with God. So none of us is saved by our works, but every single one of us who is saved is saved for good works. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't believe me? Go look it up. You're saved for them. And Jesus says, Jesus says that the way you let your light shine before the world, the way you diffuse light and the way you deter decay is through good works. Let me sh- if you don't believe me, let me sh- I'm trying to show it to you in verse 16. Notice the construction of the, of the verse. In verse 16, before others is parallel to they may see. Who may see? Others. That these things are being done before. And let your light shine as parallel to your good works. Those things are parallel to each other in the text. So what does that mean? Other than that, you know, my ninth grade grammar teacher would be like super stoked. Okay, that means this, that letting your light shine is engaging in good works. That's what it is. That's what it is. Now, these good works are diverse in their nature. They include sharing a verbal witness. Okay, a verbal witness about who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, Your own testimony about how you came to faith in Christ. It's everything from sharing a verbal witness to serving at a crisis pregnancy center to collecting canned goods to raking leaves for shut-ins. Okay? So it's ve- they're very diverse. And we're going to talk a little bit more in a moment as we close about the nature of Christian good works versus just regular humanitarian aid. There's a difference between those two things. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. But for now, let's just say that there's good works that we're doing that are very diverse. They're very diverse. Now, when you think of, of, of doing good works, most of us think only of the verbal witness side. And I think in many evangelical Protestant churches, here's why. is because throughout the late 20th or mid to late 20th century, there was a movement that emerged in the church in very, what might have been called very liberal mainline churches in which they, they sought to preach what was identified by many conservatives as a social gospel. In other words, it said, listen, it's not about atonement. It's not about sacrifice. It's not about faith. It's not about grace. It's not about God redeeming. It's not about God rescuing. It's just about us being good people and good neighbors and caring for the poor and the sick who are among us. Okay? As a result, conservative churches kind of backlash against that with an emphasis on verbal witness to Christ and really a, a, a forgetfulness about engaging the culture through good works. But listen, church, it's not either or. It is both and. It's both and. Okay, so it's both and. A verbal witness of Christ, of His redemptive work for us. It's also a love that's overflowing and being poured out in merciful acts and deeds toward those who are in great need. And listen, you don't, you don't need a broad platform to do this. You know that? See, most of us think, I could let my light shine. Right, this little light of mine, okay? I could let it shine if I had a big platform. There's a lot of people who are following me on Twitter. Okay? If I had a huge Instagram following, okay? if, if my blogs were blowing up, if I had a huge platform, okay? that if I had post-game interviews or a concert stage from which to perform or a political office. But listen, Jesus says our light shines when we do good works before others, whether the others are two people or 2,000 people. Dwight Moody said it this way. He said, God has called us to shine. Let no man or woman say that they cannot shine because they have not so much influence as some others may have. What God wants you to do is to use the influence you have. Remember, a small light will do a good deal when it's in a very dark 
place. Put one little tallow candle in the middle of a large hall and it will give a good deal of light. See, church, you don't need a big platform. It's not what you need. Let's keep, let's, let's keep moving. What kind of good works are these? Listen, that word in the Greek literally, if you translate it, it means beautiful. In other words, there's a beauty to these works. There's a beauty to a life that is captivated with its identity as salt and light and then is engaged in good works that are deterring decay and diffusing light throughout the world. These types of good works that show forth life as a citizen of God's kingdom in the midst of all the kingdoms of the earth. And as we said before, if we're going to do this, we've got to be engaged. Because listen, if salt is going to be salt, if it's going to work to preserve, it's got to come out of the jar, it's got to come out of the shaker, it's got to come out of the can, it's got to be applied to the meat. And to do that, it's got to move forward into the community, into the culture, into the city with courage and compassion. Let me give you a biblical example of this. In, in the book of Jeremiah, God has exiled the people because of their sin into Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, they've got um, the Babylonians who want them to come into Babylon and basically be immersed into the culture of the city. Take on the values of the Babylonians. That was the way the Babylonians rolled. They would bring people in and enculturate them into their values, into their norms. You also have in the book of Jeremiah, in the, in the exile there in Babylon, you have these false prophets who are speaking to the people and they're saying, listen, stay out of the city. Stay away from the people. Stay away from that culture. Stay away. Put up walls. Build fences. Don't engage. And then you have God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7, when he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says to the people who are in exile in Babylon, don't go in and be enculturated by the Babylons and live the way that they do. Don't stay out and avoid them, but go deeply in and remain distinctly different and pursue the welfare of those that are living among you and around you. Because in their welfare, you will find your welfare. If they flourish, you will flourish. If they prosper, you will prosper. So make investments there. Don't just watch the clock waiting for the end of the exile. And listen, in the book of 1 Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter talks about the church as strangers and aliens, those who are in exile today, living outside of their home country in a foreign country. And listen, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that even when they speak evil against you, they may see your good works and give glory to God on His day of visitation. Listen, church, if, if we're to do these kinds of beautiful works, then the community around us, they may begin to look at a missional community in their midst and say, listen, I'm not sure I believe what they believe. But I sure hope they don't go anywhere. Because they're making an investment here. And it's making a difference in the city in which we live. So listen. Yeah, we still got a little time. Okay. I had to collect my thoughts there for a moment. Now listen, throughout history, in times, I don't know if you've ever read much church history, but throughout history, in times of Reformation and Revival, listen, the church has had a preserving and illuminating effect on the culture. Over and over and over again. Let me give you a few examples. In the ancient world. Do you know what was common in the ancient world? In fact, we have letters documenting this. Documenting this. For infanticide to take place. You know what that was? 
you had a baby that you didn't want, what did you do with it? You threw it out onto the garbage heap. There was letters documenting this, that if you had a boy, keep the boy. He could perpetuate the family line, the name can go on. But if you had a girl, you throw it out into the trash pile. And so what would often happen is you'd have these slave owners who would come and they would take those children off the slave pile and they would raise them and eventually sell them as slaves and profit off of discarded children. Or you'd have owners of brothels come and they would take those children and they would raise them and as soon as they were of age, they began to profit off of their bodies. But then you also had Christians in the ancient world. In fact, this is one of the ways they began to have such a momentous effect on the culture of the Roman Empire who would come and they would take these discarded children and they would adopt them into their families and they would raise them as their own. They would nurture and care for and clothe them with compassion. They would teach them about Jesus. They would disciple them and they would make them just much a part of their families, their own biological children. That's a good work, church. That's a good work. Fast forward in history. And what you'll find is that during the bubonic plague from 1348 to 1350, the church didn't do everything right, but they did some things right. Okay? During the Black Death, as it spread across Europe, uh, it killed nearly one-third of the entire population between Iceland and India over the course of three years. Millions of people lost their lives. Listen to some of the symptoms of this. The first of symptoms of the bubonic plague that often appear within several days they included headaches and a general feeling of weakness, followed by aches and chills, the upper legs and groin, a white coating on the tongue, rapid pulse, slurred speech, confusion, fatigue, apathy, and a staggering gait. Then a blackish pus pockets would form at the point at which the flea that was carrying the disease bit them. By the third day, the lymph nodes began to swell. The heart began to flutter rapidly as it tried to pump blood through swollen, suffocating tissue. Subcutaneous hemorrhaging would begin to occur, causing purplish blotches on the skin. The victim's nervous system begins to collapse at that point, causing dreadful pain, bizarre neurological disorders. By the fourth or fifth day, wild anxiety and terror would overtake the sufferer, then a sense of resignation as the skin blackens. And death settles on the body. One author said it's hard to grasp the strain that the plague put on the physical and spiritual fabric of society. He said people went to bed perfectly healthy and woke up, sometimes woke up dead the next morning. And now in, in this time, over the course of these three years, rather than encouraging mutual aid, at their sick family's bedsides, the plague's deadliness drove people from each other. One Sicilian friar reported this. He said, magistrates and notaries refused to come and make the wills of the dying. The priests refused to come and care for those who were on their deathbeds. In one account, it says that one man shunned another. Kinfolk held aloof. Brother was forsaken by brother. Oftentimes, husbands forsaken by wives. And what is more, scarcely to be believed, fathers and mothers were found to abandon their own children to their fate, unattended, unvisited, as if they had been strangers. People fled the cities like, like wildfire because of the density and the proximity and the contact with these people. But there were bright spots in that dark, dark time. And the light was shown. Listen, according to one French chronicler, the nuns at one city hospital, having no fear of death, tended to the sick with all sweetness and humility. New nuns replaced those who died until most had died. Many times renewed by death, now they rest in peace with Christ as we may piously believe. See, the Christians were the ones to come to the aid of the sick and dying. That's a good work, church. It was shining light into a very dark world. You have the work to abolish the slave trade in England. A man like John Newton, who was once a slave ship director, and William Wilberforce, who, discipled, who was discipled by John Newton, who ultimately began to legislate in Parliament to end the North Atlantic slave trade. That was a good work. You had men like Matthew Andrew in Philadelphia, 
who graduated from Lincoln University and Princeton Seminary, the founding pastor of Berean Presbyterian Church, and he also organized Berean Savings Bank during an era in which people of color could not receive loans from banks in particular communities because of red line policies that banks had enacted. And so what did he do? He said, instead of fighting with the bank for my, my congregants to be treated justly and fairly, we'll start our own bank where they can receive loans so they can buy houses. They can be a part of com- that community. They can build wealth. That's a good work, church. That's a good work that shines light. And finally, it's also the opportunity to die with dignity in South Africa. And so over the last several years, I've had a chance to travel there. One of the churches that we've worked with Back in the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, they had people showing up, dying on their doorstep, literally, on the steps into their church. And the pastors and the elders and the leaders in that church could not let that happen. So what did they do? They started an AIDS hospice and they began to bring people in. They hired nurses to come in and care for those individuals. And the beautiful thing that they saw is that when people realized they were not left to die and be discarded, there were some who still died in that hospice, but some of them began to get better. As antiretroviral drugs came into, onto the market, they began to take those, and some of them came into the hospice to die and walked out as productive members of society. Now, having heard about Jesus, responded in faith to Him, and are, and are worshiping parts of church life. It's a good work, church. Listen, it's, it, it, so I asked, asked you this question earlier. What's the difference between just general humanitarian aid and this kind of good, deter uh, decaying and light diffusing good works? And listen, church, it's not the means. It is the end. It's not the means, but it is the end. See, in humanitarian aid, the end is merely for the good of the person. But in this kind of good work that Jesus, kind of beautiful work that Jesus is calling us to as a missional community, the end, the means is the same, caring for the poor, caring for the sick, righting wrongs, speaking out against injustice. But the end is not just the good of the individual, but the glory of God. It's the glory of God. That's what the Bible says right here. Okay, in Matthew chapter 5, he says we ought to aim for God's glory. Then they see your good works and what? Rejoice that the poor are cared for. No. And rejoice that the sick have a place to come and be healed. No. It's not what it says. But they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father Who's in heaven? See, the end of these good works is the glory of God. Martin Luther said it this way. He does not say they shall praise you, but rather they shall, they, that through you they may praise God in you through those works that you're engaged in. And listen, church, this is the fuel because I want to tell you something. If the end, the motivation is only for the good of the individual. I want to tell you something. It's going to limit the number of people you're willing to do good works for. How do I know that? Because I know human nature. I see it in the mirror every day. It's going to limit the number of people you're willing to do good works for based upon the disposition that you have towards them in your heart. But if there's something bigger than just the good of that person, God's glory is your greatest treasure, then you're going to want God's glory as the most satisfying thing for you. Then you know what? You want that which is most satisfying for you to be shared with other people. You want other people to see it and savor it too. Just like everything else you savor in life, right? Whenever you find a great new restaurant, what do you, what do, you do? You tell other people, hey, the steak is killer, man. you got to go try it. Right? Ladies, when you find a good sale, what do you do? Man, you're texting your friends, 75% off. Go pick it up, right? 
Because you, you want them to share in your enjoyment. And listen, whenever the glory of God is your greatest motivation, it's the fuel. It's like jet fuel that's propelling you forward. Not just the good of the individual, but through that work, you want them to share in God's glory with you so they can find it to be all satisfying and fulfilling. Then listen, it doesn't matter my disposition toward that person. <laughs> because there's something bigger that I'm aiming at than just their good. So how do we do this? I want to close with this. If you're going to aim for the glory of God through these good works, listen, here's how we do it. You have to learn to cite your source. Cite your source. Listen, this goes all the way back to literature classes in high school. One of the things I learned very early on right, is that you cannot take a, an author's words and copy and paste them into a document and then submit them as your own. I don't know how many of you in school know that yet, but that's a big no-no, okay? You can't just copy and paste and submit them as your own. If you do, you'll fail the class, potentially be kicked out of the school, right? Those are, those, it's like high crimes in the academic circle, high crimes and treason, okay? That's what it is. And listen, anytime you try to pass off the work of someone else as your own, you are plagiarizing them. You're plagiarizing them. And listen, anytime you pass off the work of God as something that was sourced in you, you are plagiarizing God. When you fail to cite your source. Here's what that looks like. Somebody compliments you about some particular virtue they see in your life. Some particular activity you've been involved in. Some particular work you've done. And they say something like, oh, I don't know how you serve so sacrificially. Right? I don't know how you give so generously. I, I, I don't think I could ever do that. You're like, yeah, you probably can't. <laughs> You know what that is? That is a prideful plagiarizing of God. When I say something like that, to cite your source, you bring them back to God. And you say, I never thought I was capable of that either. In fact, in and of myself, I'm not. But there is one who chooses, for whatever reason, unbeknownst to me, to work through me. He empowers me to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of me. And He can work through you too. If you would turn from sin, you would trust in Christ. You'd experience the Holy Spirit. You would yield your life to Him. He can work through you like that too. He can take those things that you thought you could never do. And He can empower you to do them. And that is taking someone to the source so that they can share in the glory that is most satisfying to you as well. And listen, when an entire church is operating that way, it's a city on a hill. When an entire church is operating that way, it is deterring decay. Listen, church, where, where? One of our goals, we said, I'm gonna, I keep saying I'm going to close with this, but I really am. We said one of our goals this year is to identify a local mission partner where we can invest time and energy. You know what these, these folks did in the ancient world as they rescued children off the dump pile? You know what they did in the medieval world as they showed up in the hospitals? and what did, they, what did they do? They saw a need and they moved towards it because God in Christ, they, they knew God in Christ saw, understood our great neediness and He moved towards us out of mercy to come and rescue us. And so we, out of mercy, want to move towards them. They just saw a need and they moved towards it. You know what I would, one of the things I would love as a pastor of this church is not for that need to be identified by me, but by some of you. Because you want to see this church be a city on a hill. So would you pray with us in 2020? That God might open our eyes to see a particular need in this community. 
where we can make continual investment, doing good works. Not because they earn us any credit with God. Not for our salvation, for our justification, but from it. And that we would move towards that need in tangible, meaningful, transformative ways. For the glory of God. So in 2020, we want to call our minds back to prioritizing missional community. Would you pray with me? Thank you so much. That you move toward me in the depths of my neediness. That you did not abandon me. You did not discard me. But God, I have your mercy and for your glory. Out of your mercy and for your glory. You sent your son who prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross in my place. To be merciful. To be kind. And that kindness has led me and many others in this room to a place of repentance. That you've caused us as Christians to be born again. And as we live as exiles in this world waiting, waiting for our true homeland to arrive. Father, may we not withdraw from the culture around us, but may we seek the welfare of the city in which you've placed us. May we know what we are and where we belong. And that we as a church, not just as individuals, but as a church, might have a, an effect on this culture of deterring decay and seeing healing and wholeness produced through conversion and discipleship, mercy ministries. And may we as a church diffuse light as we live for your glory, engaging good works, always citing our source, always pointing people back to the one who has saved and is sanctifying us. And may there be no limit to who we might do good to. We pray this in Christ's name.